So this morning, I want you to do something that is not easy for many of us. I want you to think. Because in our culture, I think thinking can be a four-letter word sometimes. Uh, you know, some messages are emotional, some are going to be powerful, uh, but some are going to be thought-provoking. And this is what this is going to be this morning. So if you're not prepared to think, I'm giving you fair warning. There's coffee in the back, don't eat the donuts, they will wake you up for about five minutes and after that you're going to crash. But I really want you to pay attention here. And forgive me in advance if this gets a little technical, but this is so important to understanding the Gospel of John. And these five verses are so rich, we could almost spend a, word, a week on each one of them. So I want you to pay attention because what our purpose is in this series is not just for you to listen to me and to just regurgitate everything I tell you. I don't want you to become parrots, but I really want you to understand this. I want you to understand what John is getting at. I want you to understand the importance of this gospel. And I want to teach you in a way in which you know and you can teach others. That's why the purpose of this series is to read together, to learn together, and then to be able to share together. And this morning, as we look at the Gospel of John, if you really want to know what Jesus' closest disciple has to say, pay attention. And if you don't want to know about Jesus, I guess you can go to sleep. <laughs> Nothing like good old guilt to get people motivated, right? And so one of the first things we want to get into, as we think about sharing a gospel with someone, as we think about getting into the gospel of John, one of the most common questions you'll get is, why four gospels? Why are there four gospels, and why do they seem to say different things? And I'm going to help you to be able to talk through that with, with someone, because this is really important. So uh, by way of analogy, imagine that you are tasked with writing a, an autobiography of a famous person in history. And you have the opportunity to piece together who this person is by those who know them the best. So pick any person in, in history. And what you would do is you would want to find credible sources and you'd want to get a variety of, of perspectives so you can understand who this person is. So let's carry this through. If I wanted to write a, a biography on someone, I would seek out four great sources. I mean, first, I would look at look for someone whose life was transformed by encountering this person who was one thing. And then after meeting this person became something completely different. That's Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was hated among his people. Matthew was a greedy Jew. Uh, you know, all stereotypes aside, this is who Matthew was. But after encountering Jesus, he, re he turned, repented from his ways and believed. And Matthew undertook writing a gospel that uh, connected all of the Jewish history, all of the uh, Jewish tradition, but understanding who Jesus was. That's why Matthew begins with a genealogy. Because Matthew is concerned that Jesus came from the line of David, that he came through Abraham, that he was the Jewish Messiah. And so Matthew is a first-person perspective. Matthew walked with Jesus. And he wanted to relate to the Jews, their culture. If I was writing a biography, I would also uh, want someone who was kind of a, a spokesperson for this person. Peter, if you know anything about the Gospels, Peter was this no-nonsense guy. Let's just, let's just get right to it. And for all his, his faults, after encountering the risen Christ, Peter became the, the spearhead of the apostles. And Peter's disciple, Mark who spent day after day with Peter, wrote down Peter's account. Now, Mark was, Mark was put out first, and typical of Peter, it gets right into the gospel. 
There's a lot of action in Mark. It's just, it's just, there's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of frills. It's just action after action after action. And so Mark wrote down Peter's account. Matthew walked with Jesus. Mark spoke to Peter and wrote down what Peter saw walking with Jesus. And if also, if I was going to write a biography about someone, I would go to an investigative reporter, right? Whenever uh, something happens in a courtroom, you want to make sure that the proper evidence is compiled and that investigation is done. You want to make sure that you have a multitude of witnesses, because if the prosecution has to make their case, but there's only one witness, is that a strong case? If you have several witnesses and you have reports from other witnesses, then that's a very strong case. And this is exactly what Luke set out to do. Luke was a physician. Luke was this investigative reporter. He was more technical. And so Luke did not walk with Jesus. But what Luke did was he went and interviewed people who did. He went from town to town, village to village, spoke with the apostles, spoke with those who actually knew Jesus. And this is what Luke compiles for us. And so forth, we have John. John holds a special place in Jesus' heart. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. John had this intimate relationship with Jesus, where they were so close that he would just lean on on his shoulder. And John had this beautiful relationship with Jesus, and he was probably Jesus' closest disciple. But by the time John wrote his gospel, John was older. And John had been around for a while. He had been elders in churches. He had led churches. He had discipled a lot of younger Christians. And he saw some heresies arise in the church. And John was, John wanted you to know who Jesus was, uh, but also wanted you to know who he wasn't. So he's looking to clarify some things. And so John has the advantage of hindsight where he's, he's writing probably 50 to 60 years in the future and looking back on this and what is most important for people to know. So this, how do we know who Jesus is? We look at the biography or the, the gospel, the telling of the life of Jesus by two of his closest disciples, a disciple of one of the closest disciples, and an investigative reporter. Now the next question you will get is, well, why does it seem like they all say, the, say different things? Now, I'm not an attorney. Uh, I worked in a law firm for a while. I played one on TV, I guess, if you want to say. But when you go before a jury... If every witness said the exact same thing word for word, what would you think? That they were copying from one another. That they had arranged their stories ahead of time. But what you get in these Gospels is you get four perspectives. You get four personalities, and that's how God writes Scripture. Because this is not verbatim revelation like we get in either the Quran or the the Book of Mormon where they assume that God tells them word for word what to use. But what we get in scripture is God working through personality, revelation through personality, that the Holy Spirit speaks through them. So when you read Matthew, you understand Matthew. When you read Mark, you get Peter. When you read Luke, you understand Luke. And when you read John, you get John's heart as an evangelist. It's part of the reason why we're we're going through John. This would be the same principle as if we saw an accident outside. And two people watch this happen, and they're on opposite sides of the street, and they give different details. The car came from the left, the car came from the right. Well, they're not agreeing. Of course they're not, because they're on opposite sides of the street. And the person who only heard the sound but but comes around the corner and asks what happened is getting information from eyewitnesses. And so the same principle we would apply toward a court case or toward getting witness statements for an accident or a crime 
we apply to the Gospels. When Matthew speaks, he's speaking from Matthew's perspective. And when John speaks, he's speaking from John's perspective. And John is never going to speak like Matthew because he's John. But they agree with one another and they give different details depending on what their purpose is. So hopefully you understand this concept of the Gospels. And so with John's Gospel, his purpose is so that you might believe. This is John's expressed purpose. So if you have the Gospel of John, I want you to turn to chapter 20 for me. So John chapter 20. Look at verse 30 and 31. What's the purpose of John's Gospel? He gives it to you right here. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the gospel. We don't have to figure it out. And that's the purpose of us going through this. We want you to know who Jesus is, and that by believing in him, you can have life in his name. John also gives us one more footnote at the end. Turn to chapter 21, uh, verse 25. The very last verse in the book. Or let's, let's look at verse 24, because that's helpful as well. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. Saying, this is John. Me, I walked with him. I sat with him. Verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's an amazing statement. And when I went to uh, the library at my seminary this, this week, I got a glimpse of that because in the Gospel of John, there's probably a couple hundred commentaries that are just in that library. There are probably more words written about the Gospel of John than books and literature existed in John's day. It's amazing how influential this this book has been. But what John wrote in here, everything is intentional. And the way that the Holy Spirit works through John, no word is laid in haphazardly. And hopefully you see that this morning. Because a couple things I want you to know about John. John has very simple language, yet it's very profound, and he's got this extraordinary nuance and intentionality. In John's gospel, it's a masterpiece of theology, but also literature. It's it's beautiful, and there's a lot that's lost between the Greek and the English, and I'm going to try to address some of those things this morning without getting too technical. Um, I love what A.T. Robinson, who's a, a Greek commentator, says about John's writing style. He says, John writes with the ripeness of age, and in the richness of his long experience. He gives his reminiscences mellowed by long reflections and yet with a rare dramatic power. This is the writings of a wise old man, but also the power of someone who encountered God incarnate. And this is just amazing. And his focus is more evangelistic than the other Gospels. The other Gospels are called synoptic Gospels, a word that just means a summary. They give a summary of Jesus' life. But John, he is evangelistic in nature. He wants you to know who Jesus is. He wants you to know the good news so that you might believe. John is concerned with theology, the spiritual nature of who God is. He's been around so long, he he knows that people know the stories. They know the the, the teaching. He, He doesn't have to go through all the miracles. But he wants to make sure that who Jesus is is clearly represented. And that the falsehoods and the heresies that are out there are addressed. And so we're going to get into a couple of those this morning. Obviously, I can't get into all of them. But I want you to understand where people have have gone wrong and where the text corrects those. So uh, we're going to spend the next three weeks 
what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses. And this week, uh, we're going to spend our time in the first five verses, the, the infinite word. Next week, we're going to be looking at 6 through 13, the illuminating word. And then the next week will be 14 through 18, the incarnate word. Um, and these verses build on one another. So this morning, we're just going to focus on 1 through 5. Uh, you should be familiar with these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And, w- and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. You are eternal, infinite, unchanging, and yet you've condescended to make yourself known to us. You've spoken words we can understand. You've given us your spirit to open our minds. And I just pray that your spirit would be at work today. That you would prepare our hearts to learn, to be transformed. That you would prepare our minds to be renewed by the truth of who you are. I just prepare that your word, I just pray that your word would not come back void. It would go out with the power that you intended to accomplish your purpose. And that this sermon and this series and this church would be glorifying to you and exalting to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, no text is probably more well known and uh, more disputed than John 1 through 5. What you believe about this text determines the foundation of your religion. Literally. And this text is what separates us from the cults. What we would call a cult would be someone who, a, a group of people who borrow from Scripture, but do not believe what we believe about Christ, but would still claim to be Christians. It's a definition of a cult. They borrow from Scripture, do not believe what we believe, yet still claim to be Christians. Because if Jesus is not the Jesus of John 1 through 5, it is not the Jesus of the Bible, and it is not Christianity. This we cannot get away from. And every word John uses it here is intentional. And it is amazing. And so, uh, forgive me again. I I am going to get a little technical, but everything will be relevant. I promise, and I will explain it. um, And hopefully you will appreciate it. And the first thing I want you to understand here is that John is trying to prove something. John is making a case here in this text. But he's not making a case for the existence of God. He assumes it. He assumes that everyone reading this has some concept of of God. But he's going to connect some different concepts that uh, existed in his time. So we see in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. In the Greek, this is literally in beginning. Not the beginning, a point in time, but in beginnings, more pointing toward origin. So he's not saying that time started with the word. That basically in the beginning of all things, the origin of all things, the foundation, beginning of all things is the word. Makes us think back to some other part of scripture. In the beginning, what else do we think of? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. This is not by accident. John is intentional here. Throughout the gospel, we're going to see this this double layer of John. He's going to speak to the temporal things and the spiritual things. He's going to speak to uh, historical things, uh, but also spiritual realities. So we're to think back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. 
John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. This connection should jump right off the page at you. And the same word that was in the beginning was there for creation. Uh, up on your screen will be John, John 17.5. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture here. I'm not going to have you turn there because I, I want you paying attention. When Jesus has his high priestly prayer, he's praying to God and he gives you a little indication of this. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The same word that was in the beginning before the existence of the world. is praying to the Father and gives us an insight to who he is. In Revelation, he speaks of being the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. From beginning to end, all-encompassing is Jesus. I love what Arthur Pink says about this. He says, Jesus is the alphabet of God. I love that. That you can't even talk about God. You can't speak about him without using the alphabet. There is no letter that does not point to God that does not go through Christ first. The alphabet of God from beginning to end. Okay? So far so good? It's going to get a little tougher from here. Hopefully you're still with me. If not, I'm going anyway. Um, I want to give you a, a quick Greek lesson. And no, not Greek finance, but Greek language. Definitely not Greek finance. Um, so when we get into our, our Bible studies, what is the first thing we always do? We always pray. Thank you. Um, yes, we, yes, we pray before we get into our Bible study. But, but the first step we do in observing the text, we look at repeated words. If you look at verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is not a trick question. What words are repeated three times? Word and, and three times, was. So first we're going to look at was and then we're going to look at word. This is really important because was is a word, track with me here, that we would normally just skip over. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is the Greek word a me. It means I am. Ring any bells? The name of God, I am. It means existence. The word exists with God. And this is also a part of speech in Greek that doesn't really translate in English. It's called the imperfect. Again, I'm going to get technical, but track with me here. Because what this is, is not a singular event in history, but this is a reality in history. Not, not the word existed past tense, but has always existed. So whenever you see was here in this first verse, think always was. In the beginning, always was the word. In the, and the word was always with God. And the word was always God. This is the sense of John 1.1. It is a reality rather than a, a specific time in history. This is so important when we read through this. And don't worry if you don't re remember these terms. I don't care if you remember the terms. I want you to remember the concepts. Because it... I studied this for a long time, and I had to read up on some of these terms to make sure I got them correct this morning. So don't worry about the terms, but I want you to get the, the concept. John is saying the I am, the ever-existing I am, existed then and still exists, has been unchanging. This is so important. This is where everything is based on. You got that? Tracking with me? Okay, was. Now we look at word, also repeated three times. Now this gets a little more... Um, this gets a, a little more complex because it had a meaning in John's day that it doesn't have now. But there is a correlation. So when we speak, we're trying to take what we know and make it known to others, right? We use our words to convey an idea from me to you. And when you speak from you to me. 
And word, this, this term word, logos in, in the Greek, was a, a common philosophical idea. And it was common in Greek thought and in Jewish thought. And it really meant what is most important and what is ultimate. Where, what is the origin of, of things and uh, what is above all else? Lagos. So the word John is borrowing from the, the, the um, cultural climate of his time. And John is speaking in what we call a polemic way. I'm going to use a lot of words you don't know. But what all a polemic is, is it's taking ideas from a, uh, a system of thought that exists and redeeming it to point to the Lord. Paul did this all the time. He quoted Greek philosophers to point to Christ. This is a tool that John is using. He's speaking to an issue of the day, and he's using it to point to God. And I want to encourage you that this is something we can do. This is something, this is a tool that, that, that we have. Because the, the word as, as they had it doesn't exist. But we have these grand ideas that our culture worships, right? One of the things our culture worships is, is love. You can speak to anyone, anywhere, and love is this, this concept that, that everyone wants to talk about, everyone wants to latch onto. We can use a love that the, that the world has distorted to feelings that, that, that come and go, to um, uh, tolerance for the sake of, of, of tolerance, to redeeming it. We know what love is. We all know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We can tell them about that love. We can tell them about the love that we have from God who loved us first. And if there's anything that the world worships more than love, it's probably sex. Sex is, sex is, is worshipped in, in our culture. It is the sacred calf in our culture. But we can take the concept of sex, which God uh, gave us, and it's a good thing, part of the, the creation mandate, and we can point it back to God. Yeah, you enjoy sex because God wants us to be fruitful and multiply. But just like any good thing, I mean, really, I want to sit home every day and, and drink and eat junk food and, and do things I'm not supposed to. Uh, but there, there, there are, are limits to things. And God put a limit around sex. And sex is a good thing, but it's meant to be limited within a marital relationship between husband and wife. And that is where it gives glory to God. And that is where you'll see the most fruit of a sexual relationship. And it's a good thing. We can also talk about other things that, that, that the world celebrates, like identity. This is my primary identity. This is how I identify myself. We can point them to scripture. We can use that as a polemic. Identity in scripture is that you are made in the image of God. Is that you think and you reason and you love because God thinks, reasons, and loves. And the, 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 the pinnacle of human identity is to reflect the creator who created you. These are tools that we have at our disposal. And this is what John was doing. The fire that Deshaun spoke about earlier, that's the reason why one side you get information about the church and the other side you get all these questions. Because these are questions that people have. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is my purpose? What about love? Why do I need to be forgiven? And with basic Sunday school understanding, we can answer these, these questions. It's really not hard. I think many times we, we try to overthink this. But John knew what he was dealing with at the time. And so I want to talk about that just for a, a moment. This concept of the word that John is using polemically, uh, arguing from a secular idea and redeeming it to the Lord, it was the ultimate in communication, reason, and revelation. And it was primary in both Jewish and Greek thought. So we'll talk about the Greeks for just a moment. 
There were a group of Greeks called the Stoics at the time. And the Stoics were these kind of high and mighty philosophers who um, they exalted reason above everything else. They didn't care about emotion. They didn't care about spirituality. They didn't care about the physical world. Only who's got bigger and better ideas. They exalted reason. Uh, And they called the Logos, the word, the soul of the universe, the eternal reason. And they influenced a lot of later Greek thinkers. So John most likely had them in mind. But also, the word was a common tool used in Jewish teachings. So in those days, there, there were the Targum, basically were Jewish commentaries on Old Testament scriptures. And the, the, the Jews took the, the, the commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain so seriously that they would not even mention I am. They would not even mention Yahweh. They would say either the divine name or the word. So when you read the, the, uh, the, the Jewish commentaries, it would say, thus saith the word. Because they were inserting the word because they were afraid to use God's name in vain. So when John's speaking, he's drawing on the Greeks, the most prevalent philosophy in his day, but also the Jews who are reading these Old Testament commentaries and, um, and, and inserting the word for the name of God. Making sense? Tracking with me? Uh, one of the most well-known Jewish commentators, his name is, is, is Philo, and uh, he was pulling from the Greeks and he was pulling from the Jews. He used word, logos, over 1,300 times in his writings, and it meant all kinds of different things. And so what John is doing in one foul swoop, I know what you all believe. I know that you're all thinking different things about the word, but let me tell you who the word really is. Let me really tell you about the word. Let me take what you're already using and let me point it back to God. Let me redeem it. Let me point it to Christ. There is a, um, there's a, a great summary which uh, is going to be up on, on your screen. Oh, no, it's in my book. Um, so I, I brought this. This was really helpful. So there's a commentator named uh, William Temple who summarizes this. And so he says of the Logos, alike for Jew and Gentile, it represents the ruling fact of the universe. And it represents that fact as the self-expression of God. The Jew will remember that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. The Greek will think of a rational principle of which all natural laws are particular expressions. Both will agree that this logos is the starting point of all things. So John took a word that meant different things to different people. And he used it intentionally to point to the Lord. So, here we are still in verse 1. We'll move a little quicker than this. But I, I want you to get this. This is so important. Because verse 1 in itself could be a sermon series. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was always with God. And the Word always was God. So we got the beginning handled. Now what about with God? This, this in the Greek literally means toward God or the sense of being face to face with God. No one is equal to God, right? Except God. But what John is saying here is he is with God. He is, the word is face to face with God. Um, this is something I read this week that, that blew my mind. It's going to be up on the screen because I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to butcher it. It was so amazing. So, uh, Arthur Pink, who I, I quote a lot, talks about this section. And I just, I just want to walk through this because this is so helpful. He says, the word was with God, tells of his separate personality. He was not in God, but with God. Now mark here the marvelous accuracy of Scripture. It is not said that the Word was with the Father, as we might have expected, but the Word was with God. 
The name God is common to the three persons of the Trinity, whereas the Father is a special title of the first person only. Had it said the word was with the Father, the Holy Spirit had been excluded. But with God takes in the word dwelling in eternal fellowship with both the Father and the Spirit. You get that? The intentionality of what John is using here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, Father, and Spirit. Observe too. It does not say, and God was with God, for then there would be plurality of persons in the Godhood. Or excuse me, for while there is plurality of persons within the Godhood, there is but one God. Therefore, the minute accuracy of the word was with God. You see what he's saying here? He's talking about the, the, the Son was with the Father and the Spirit. Not God was with God, then we'd have two gods. Every word here is in its, its perfect placement. It's, it's pretty amazing. So in the beginning was God. The word was with God. And the word was God. To leave no stone under, uh, unturned. Like have, if you haven't gotten it yet, he was God. With God, with God and was God. This is so fundamental in understanding the, the Trinity, which gets distorted so much. That we have one God in three persons. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, yet they are one. How does that work? I have no idea. I'm not God. And we're not supposed to. But we know that it works. Because we know in Scripture that each has distinct uh, attributes of a person, yet each is attributed being God. And this is a great declaration of the Trinity here. So, so far in verse 1, if he is not eternal, if he is not face-to-face with God, and if he is not God, it's not Jesus. And so the most important question we can ask ever is, who is Jesus? Because if it's not this Jesus... If he's not eternal, if he was created himself, if he's not very God, then we're talking about a different Jesus and we're talking about a different religion. So far in verse 1, just in verse 1, he's proved three things. Origin, position, and identity. Origin, where he came from, he had no beginning. Position, he's with God, equal to God. And identity, he is God. Get it? In one verse, we have probably the most complete Christology or theology of Christ in all of of Scripture in several words. It's incredible. All right, verse 2 is a a summary. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, Just kind of a reiteration of what we just looked at. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we move from the identity of who he is to his work in, in creation. That, that he is, is um, creative, his ingenuity. That he's not just this distant God, but his hand, his, his hand was all over creation. And so this would have brought them back that God said, and it was. God said, and it was. It would again bring them back to Genesis 1. All things were made through him. We're going to continue in, in our Greek lesson. Really important. I want you to get this. Because the Greek word we just used a moment ago, a me, is I am. It is being of itself. It does not speak of a beginning or end. But the word here, made, is um, ginomai, which is, which is coming into being. It actually has a beginning. So there's a distinction drawn between the one who has no beginning and the one who is the beginning of all things. Get the, get the difference here? He's using these words because these words can sometimes be interchangeably, but the nuance of them tells you the purpose of the writer. I don't want to get bogged down in in these terms here, but I want you to get this. Because in verse 1, the one who is eternal being, being itself, I am, 
is the one who created and brought other things into being. I want you to see some, some scriptures. We're going to go through these, these quickly uh, because this is not new here. This has been all throughout scripture. Uh, and look first at Psalm 33, which we read this morning. This is why we read this this morning. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all of the earth feel the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is David in the Psalms. Uh, 750 years or, or, or more uh, before Jesus. Uh, next, look at Isaiah 54, 5. This should reveal so much to us about the New Testament. For your maker is your, your husband. We're the bride of Christ. Make that connection. The Lord of hosts is his name. One with God. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. There is no separation between your maker, your Lord, and your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. The same God who always was is your, your husband, your redeemer, your maker. Uh, go on to 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things, uh, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all uh, are all things and through whom we exist. The same language is, is tied to the Father and the Son. There is unity here. Uh, look at Colossians 1, 16, 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Last one from Hebrews 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. No difference. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I could go on and on and on, but it just kind of gives you a surface level understanding of what of all scripture agreeing here. And John is tying this together. He is eternal. He is without beginning. He created all things that had a beginning. All right, one more thing. Last Greek thing, I promise. This is also important to understand. I always wondered about this. Have you ever read this and wondered it? Why does it say, and without him, not anything uh, made that was made? And why does this have to, why is um, made said three times? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right. John's use of the Greek here is so important, and it's so precise. And without, and all things were made through him. This is more like our past tense. This is the, the, the heiress that means one event in the past. All things that were made then, that have been made, that were made and, and died, uh, the word made those. But it's interesting, in the last one, and all the things, and excuse me, and not anything made that was made. This is a perfect tense. Again, don't worry about the terms. It means something that has been made, but still has an influence on the, the present. So this is saying the word is creator and sustainer. Everything that has been made and everything that is made and living now, it is by and through him. So, so far in just one through three, we get that Jesus is eternal. We get that Jesus is divine. We get that Jesus is creator and he is sustainer. We can read the whole Testament to put that together. And John has that here in the first three verses. Is that helpful? 
If you're not following along, talk to me later. If you need me to write this out, I can try. Um, but I, I do want to move forward, but I really want you to get this. John is saying so much in these little verses. And, and if you are twisting or distorting anything of this, you are not a Christian. This is not Jesus. If he is not eternal, if he is not divine, if he is not creator, if he is not sustainer, it is not Jesus. Verse 4. In him was life, and life was the light of men. All right. Um, I'm going to move through this quickly. Uh, so when we look at, at light, uh, it, is also, it is physical, but it is also spiritual. Light uh, comes down physically and gives life and energy to all that it touches. But the light of God gives energy and life to all that it touches spiritually as well. So this is not a temporary quality. He uses the imperfect again here. Something that always was without beginning. So the life that exists in him has always existed in him. And it would speak back again to Genesis 1.1. Or excuse me, Genesis 1. What was the first thing that God said after he created? Let there be... He created light. And light did what? It separated the darkness and God said that light was good. John is walking through Genesis 1 with us, pointing it to Christ. Light and life are two concepts that are central to John. Um, I want you to look at John chapter 8 for me. We're in the book. I want you to see these two come together. John chapter 8 verse 12. Listen to these come together in the words of Jesus. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's the light that he's talking about, the light of life. Look at John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus is talking to Martha here. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The most important question we can ask after who is Jesus is, do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the light and the resurrection? Are you trying to find life in anything else? Is there a light that could be brighter than Christ? Is there a life that is more eternal than Christ? Do you believe this? It's the most important question we ever have to answer is, do I believe this? Do I believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life? And no one knows about this eternal God except through him. You can't explain God without Jesus. It's like trying to speak without using the alphabet. You can't. So is life only in him or is, or is life in something else? This is what Jesus asked them and it was so important. So, so far, what is the word? He's eternal God who is light and life. And why do we need light and life? Because of darkness. What is darkness? We know the story. We know that sin came into the world, that darkness came into the world. From the very beginning, God said light is good, darkness is bad. But Adam and Eve chose darkness. They chose evil. And it came into the world. But, verse 5, this life that is the light of men, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
This, again, is theological and it's and it's historical looking back to Genesis one. But it's also got theological uh, relevance. This word shine, it's it's a Greek word that that, that means it just continues. He, He was shining and he is shining. He will never stop shining. It is a shining that goes on and on forever. It is a light of the world that can never be distinguished, extinguished. One of those. Have you ever been in a room that is completely devoid of, of light? Have you ever been in a place that is so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face? Anyone? I have. You ever been out in the middle of nowhere on a cloudy night? And it's like, how can it be this dark? Uh, there's a fear that sets in with, with, with no light. There's this hopelessness, like, what can I do? I can't see. I don't know anything. That's how important the light is to the darkness. It is said that on a completely dark, cloudy night, one single lit match can be seen for miles. And the light of the world overcomes the darkness. And as soon as the light shines, what happens to the darkness? It's gone because of the light. And this light that overcomes the darkness does not just shine on the darkness without. It also shines in the darkness within. Because it is the light of Christ that shows us the wickedness of the world. But it is the light of Christ that shows us the wickedness within our own flesh. And this light pierces all things. And there is no life without this light. Without this light, there is only darkness. And this is the only light that can save from spiritual darkness. So here's what John has done so far. Who is Jesus? Divine, eternal, creator, sustainer, and savior. All within five verses. All religions have an idea of light and dark, good and evil. But none of them have an absolute answer to it. Jesus is the absolute answer from darkness to light. Without question. Darkness cannot overcome him. You do not have this assurance anywhere else but in Christ. John is building a foundation here. This is so important because everything else builds on this. Because if you don't understand this about Christ, the rest of this gospel has no meaning. If this is not Jesus, throw the rest of the gospel out. But if this is, then we read the rest of this gospel on the edge of our seat. Because we'll see soon that this word, who is eternal, who is divine, who made and sustained all things, became flesh and walked among us. And here's what he did. And here's what he said. And here's why he came. It's why this gospel is so important. So I just want to conclude really quick. Jesus is the eternal, infinite word. He's equal with God. He is creator and sustainer of all things. And he is the only way to be overcome by darkness. I want you to leave with that. That's easy. All of you can remember that and repeat it. Jesus is the eternal, infinite word. Equal with God, creator and sustainer of all things. And the only way to overcome darkness. And what's really amazing is that Jesus makes the unknowable God knowable. The word takes God, who should not even be able to be comprehended by our brains and puts it in words we can understand. I hope you enjoy this time in John. I hope you, you, you dig in and I hope you, you learn here. And most importantly, I hope you believe these words. 
that Jesus is light and life, and in him, whoever believes in him will not perish. Just pray that this series will be encouraging to you and encouraging to others, and that as the Lord has promised, his word will not come back void. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. You do not need us. We can't add anything to you. Before the world existed, you had all you need. You are existence itself. You are being without equal, without beginning, without end. Yet you've made yourself known to us. Yet you took on flesh and walked among us. You lived with us, enduring temptation and sin and betrayal for the sake of the sins of worthless man. You came to be light in the midst of our darkness. Let us trust in you as our light and our life. Let us look to you as our only source of hope, our only hope for salvation. For believers, just pray that you would remind us of this over and over and over again of who we are in you. Who you are and what you have done. And For those who do not believe, those who do not know you, Spirit, pierce hearts this morning. Transform lives. Bring light into darkness. Raise the dead to life because only you can do that. In Jesus' name, amen.